If men experienced all of those or if it was a universal problem, I guarantee there would be a lot more money going into the research behind why this happens. There's so much advice out there at the moment that's like, just quit. Just quit. Follow your passion. You'll survive. Please know that I didn't leave my own very structured NHS job until I had a business running for 11 years. After that, I decided to go full time with the food medic and leave the NHS, which is a very hard decision. As we know today, in our modern lifestyle, majority of conditions that we suffer with and die from are chronic diseases. And they can also be prevented through things like nutrition. You were feeling burnt out from being a doctor, being in practice, trying to do all these talks and create all these books. But actually what you said was it was COVID. Losing my father was the most harrowing thing I've ever experienced and so it was COVID. When you were going through this period, were you sharing your experience online? No. And I think the tricky thing when you work online as a creator is the boundaries get very blurred. And so when are you switching off? It's very tricky to talk about because mm. I have a huge... Hey everyone and welcome back to Millennial Mind. This is my first episode in this new studio and I have one really quick favour to ask from all of you. If you haven't already, wherever you're watching or listening to this podcast, if you could press the follow and subscribe button, it would really mean the world to me. Thank you so much for supporting me on this journey here. Let's get into it because I cannot wait for you to see my new studio and my incredible guest today. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or your computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating a podcast today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify, and when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I love engaging with my audience with the Q&A and the polls. And I also love the fact that I can upload my video podcast on Spotify because I know my audience love watching it sometimes when they're traveling on their commute. I highly recommend you give it a try and you can download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com forward slash podcasters to get started. Hey Zor, welcome to Millennial Mind. Thank you. I'm super excited for you to be here. Also, we've like color coordinated and matched a little bit today. (laughs) But for people who don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, My name's Hazel. I'm a medical doctor, nutritionist, um, personal trainer and author and founder of The Food Medic, which is basically an online platform that I created as a medical student um, that talks about evidence-based practices related to lifestyle. So things like nutrition, movement, mental health. And women's health is a really big focus of mine at the moment. And you can find me on all social media platforms as The Food Medic. You've built up such a big following across so many different platforms. And all I thought when I looked at your profile was, it's hard enough to be a doctor as it is. (laughs) How did you graduate and then kind of start this journey? So it's quite a long story. I'll try (laughs) to give you the shorter version. But um, basically, I didn't always know that I wanted to be a doctor or go into healthcare. 
no one in my family is a medic. Um, but when I was 14, my dad died of a stroke. And it was after that I decided to study medicine and become a doctor. And prior to him passing away, he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or borderline type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure and was given medication to help um, kind of bring down those risk factors, which he should have. Mm -hmm. But he was given no advice in terms of like movement and um, kind of stress management and nutrition, like other important risk factors for heart disease and stroke. And I think somewhere in the back of my head, that was like very, um, I was very aware of this, especially as I was going through medical school. And I realized I was learning all of these incredible things about advances in medicine when it came to medicine and surgery. But we were very much kind of ignoring this huge component, which is lifestyle. And as we know today in our modern lifestyle, majority of conditions that we suffer with and die from are chronic diseases like heart disease, cancer, stroke, type 2 diabetes, which happen over a long period of time, have multiple risk factors, are largely related to our lifestyle, not like a cold that you can like sneeze and catch. Right. Um, and the tricky thing with these conditions is you can't just treat them with one pill and one surgery. Yes, pills and surgery have a place, but really it requires like a multitude of things and they can also be prevented through things like nutrition. And so I graduated as a doctor and during this time I kind of been doing all my online stuff as the food medic, which um, I'd started 11 years ago now today. Oh my gosh. I know, it's a long time. Is it actually today? No, well, oh. <laughs> this year. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I don't know exactly what day I started, but yeah. 11 years ago. And then I retrained as a nutritionist after working as a few years as a doctor then I worked as a nutrition doctor in the NHS which is quite niche um, and yeah. it's mostly working with people who have um basically are undergoing like oncology treatments or cancer treatment and require supportive nutrition or they've had huge bowel resections and they require artificial feeding in that way as well so it's quite prescriptive and that was really interesting, but it wasn't really the nutrition that set my soul on fire, the reason I got into nutrition and medicine in the beginning. Um, then I worked as a COVID doctor unexpectedly for two years. Oh, wow. And that set me uh, kind of focused on something else for a while. And that was a terrible experience for everyone involved, mm. but a huge learning for me. And after that, I decided to go full time with the food medic and leave the NHS, which is a very hard decision. And only one that I think I'm comfortable with talking about now, 18 months out, um, because I've really found my footing with kind of being uh, someone who supports themselves. I mm. own my own business and um, that's really terrifying to do. And yeah, so I mean, once I kind of came out, then I published my third book, which is The Female Factor. And that was slightly different to the previous books, which are related to mostly nutrition mm -hmm. the female factor really shines a light on the differences between men and women when it comes to health and the fact that women have been largely excluded from medical research for a very long time and so I wrote a book split into the pillars of nutrition movement mood and stress um sorry mood and sleep and how that is slightly different for women compared to men 
taking things into consideration like hormones, the menstrual cycle, puberty, um, pregnancy and menopause and how all of those factors influence those core pillars of health. So a lot of my work now is largely related to that um, kind of promoting women's health and I still like nutrition still my bread and butter and the my biggest passion. There is so much to unpack there. I should have brought notes. I had all of that written down in in a, in in a consolidated form. And now I'm like, wait, hold on, wait, where do I start? So let's start with what you said around quitting the NHS. Mm. Have we talked about that before? Um, I think maybe on my podcast or maybe on someone else's podcast. Exclusive access, everyone. Yeah. I don't really... Yeah, it's, it's very tricky to talk about because mm. I have a huge audience of health professionals and medical students and people who are going into medicine um and so i think i don't want to paint a picture that the nhs is the worst idea and yeah. to not work in it and i loved my time in there i loved seeing patients i thrive in a capacity where i work one-on-one -on -one with people okay it's how i work best but i think as with many people i was a very burnt out at the end of covid um in that like the last kind of few weeks i did go off sick because of burnout and b i think covid was the nudge i needed to finally leave because i'd been running or kind of building the food medic for 11 years in the background and was never brave enough to leave mm. And I wasn't really fully committed to either because in medicine, you have to fully commit. And if you're in a training program, you are all in. That is hours in the hospital. You don't know if you're going to be in the hospital you want. You might be, might be moved around the country. You're constantly doing exams. And I committed to that. But then this, like the food medic just took off. Mm. And I had to make a decision. Like for my health, you have to go all in with one of them. And during COVID, I experienced so much death and trauma and I was like life is too short to do something that isn't setting my soul on fire I am smiling throughout that whole thing because <laughs> it's been one year since I decided to quit my job and I felt the exact same as you I'm an average management consultant I'm an average podcaster what am I doing you know and it's so hard to make that decision to quit especially I think for you you probably had that extra level of responsibility in terms of I'm changing people's lives mm -hmm. whilst for me as a management consultant I didn't really feel that I was doing that but it's still a really difficult decision because in that moment you have to look at yourself and think what's making me happy yeah and I have a planner which I've actually given you one and in that every day I would ask the, one of the questions is what did you do well or what did you enjoy mm. and what are you proud of and every day I'd be writing getting this podcast guest mm. I really enjoyed doing something related to my podcast and I was looking at my days filling out this planner thinking what am I doing mm. you know I'm not proud of myself about my job in any way because I'm not pushing myself because I'm doing the bare minimum I need to do to get by I feel like I'm pushing myself loads with a podcast but I'm limited to the hours between nine and after five. Mm. So what am I exactly doing? I feel like I'm wasting my life, but that decision to quit is really difficult. What was that thought process you went through in terms of starting your own business? Because you mentioned that it's very difficult. I mean, this week has been a total nightmare for me. I don't know why, I don't know what's happening, but I feel like I can't stop crying every single day. And I think that I have these weeks since I've quit my job of, it's so overwhelming. Okay, it's great again. Okay, it's so overwhelming. Oh, this went well today. Oh my God, this happened. And it's such a balance of emotions. Mm. 
How did you make that decision to fully commit to doing this full time? And then did you have that same level of uncertainty and I guess nervousness as I did? I, yes to your second question. Um, I think the food medic becoming its own like business and brand in itself was never intentional. You know, I started it as this like passion project, which grew into like books and podcasts. And like I signed a two book deal when I was still in med school and I was living in Wales and I was like ready to start my first job as a like as a doctor in a busy central London hospital. And I did that. And I always just thought, you know what, I'll just always do both. I'll just always do both because medicine fulfills this part of me that I've always wanted I've always wanted to be a doctor and I love that feeling of helping people and seeing the tangible results Mm. but I also love being creative and I love the food medic and I love that I can speak to more people and reach more people and hopefully help prevent more people losing their parents at early ages Mm. and so I think the decision to make the leap was more um I I kind of see the food medic as a vocation which might sound a little bit woo but I very much believe in like what's meant to be will be I don't think I'm here by accident I don't think I've created this brand by accident Mm. although like losing my father was the most harrowing thing I've ever experienced and so was COVID all of those things have like nudged me into this place which feels very aligned with my values both personally and professionally and I think um, in healthcare, you know, th- not, there's not always space for that, that like mm. element of like going with intuition and things like that. So to be brave and be the person that's doing something different can be uncomfortable. And it's not always being greeted with positive feelings. And sometimes people might wish that they could leave their job as quite as easily. And, you know, sometimes I do get people who, who say, hey, I want to like, leave my job and become a nutritionist or I'm thinking about becoming a personal trainer and I'm like that's amazing but like please know that I didn't leave my own kind of very structured NHS job until I had a business running for 11 years I love that it's it's I'm love I'm like I'm smiling for everything you're saying because I've just spoken about this there's so much advice out there at the moment that's like just quit just quit. follow your passion <laughs> You'll survive. If you if you put yourself in water, you'll drown. You'll, you, you'll feel like you're drowning, but you'll swim. You'll learn to swim. Yeah. And I'm like, no, you have to have a plan. So I just spoke about this recently. I don't think that everyone has a plan. And it's great that some people have quit their jobs. They have no idea what they want. You see their TikTok story of, I, I, I decided to quit my job five years ago. And now I'm a six-figure millionaire. Like, great. That's fantastic for you in the real world that can't happen for a lot of people yeah. and I'm still not a six-figure millionaire and I only quit last year so I don't know where these messages are coming from but I always say to people everyone thinks that you need self-belief to quit mm. and whilst that's a part of what you do need what all you need is proof of concept and what I mean by that is it took you 11 years to make that decision right for some people they might get there in 15 years but for some people they might get there in two because what I did with mine is I was doing my job and I had my podcast on the side now I wanted to quit for so long and I actually took a sabbatical as well Mm. and I wasn't ready 
Mm. Because I didn't have the proof of concept. When I quit, the only reason I quit was because I was already getting uh, deals on Instagram. They were not big, but I thought I'm getting something so this could expand. I was selling my planner and I thought, again, not huge sales, but I can expand this. I was doing workshops and I was doing um, coaching. So I had four revenue streams where I was getting something. Mm. And what I thought was I have proof of concept in all of these areas that are inbound. So what can I do if I now have the space and time to do outbound? And I think that's what you need is proof of concept. Is my idea going to work? Has it already worked? And now is there space for me to scale it up? Mm. And I think people at the moment on the internet are just saying, quit your job and become a TikToker and you'll earn six-figure sums. It's just not true. No. And growing your, and we're going to talk about growing your business and how difficult it is, but there was something you mentioned about burnout. Mm. And when you were talking to me, I was thinking you were going to tell me that you were feeling burnt out from, you know, being a doctor, <laughs> being in practice, doing your page, trying to do all these talks and, you know, create all these books. But actually what you said was it was COVID. Yeah. Well, not like not actually having COVID. Yes. I had COVID multiple times. Going through that process. <laughs> but of, going yeah. through that process, it was actually the tail end. So um, it was like March, a year after COVID had first happened. And at that point, I was doing long COVID clinics in the weekdays. And we were at one of the first clinics in the country Actually, I think we were the first. <laughs> and so we were overrun. We like everyone just referred to us. So we were doing telephone cl clinics and there was four doctors and there was two junior doctors. That was me and my friend. And so we were doing a lot of the consultations and then speaking to our consultants should we need support. Okay. And we were kind of trying to manage all of the referrals we were getting, trying to speak to the patients who were very confused. We were also trying to find out more information because long COVID was this very new thing. And then on the weekends and sometimes in the evenings, I was doing nursing intensive care shifts. I'm not a nurse, but there was just so many nurses off sick that they needed doctors to step in. So I was like managing mm -hmm. people in intensive care. And if you've ever been to an ICU department, a lot of it is... There's a lot of machines. There's a lot of manual, like turning people, um, eye care, mouth care, things that you don't learn as a doctor, but you train specifically as an ICU nurse. And that really took a toll on me because I was also living alone. So I'd just go from mm. my weekdays into my weekends and got very bad OCD to the point where I would come home go to bed and then panic that COVID was in my hair and just get up and have a shower in the night and really? just got really like I, I'm not I um, can be quite anxious but my anxiety was through the roof and I spoke to one of my consultants who was like you just need to take some time off spoke to a therapist who was like just stay in bed for the weekend which ended up being a week and then two weeks and then I finally made the decision that I was going to take time from the NHS mm. and then three months later I decided to not go back when you were going through this period were you sharing your experience online no it's no. even more isolating yeah yeah did you find it hard to not share it online were you still posting online at the same time I I was posting that I was going to work and then I just took I just went offline that those two weeks 
And then when I made the decision to leave, I didn't tell anyone for a long time. I actually took myself to Malta that summer for a month by myself. And just like... <laughs> Amazing. Just stayed in this little uh, Airbnb by the water in like a non-touristy part and started writing The Female Factor, which was my book. And I loved it. I had a complete Instagram detox. I deleted all the apps off my phone for a month. Wow. I only had WhatsApp to speak to my friends and family. And it was the best month. It was the best thing I've done. I read really? so many books. I was so chilled. And I came back and it that was the month that I met my now fiance. And I during COVID I went through a bad breakup. So I was dealing with heartbreak as well. And it's just like I kind of needed that time to heal by myself. Mm. And then I came back to London with a very different view of what I want from my life and um yeah. No, I love that. <laughs> when you took that time off Instagram, did you have a team that were posting about you? No, I just told everyone on Instagram I'm gonna take a month off. And how many followers did you have? Do you remember roughly? It was two years ago, so probably probably about half a million then. Half a million? Yeah. It's so interesting because people say that you can never stop. I didn't lose any. I, I was just gonna followers. it's crazy isn't it yeah I last year was at the stage where I think I kept getting a high from the podcast yeah and then I was so burnt out and I didn't care because I would get another high from the podcast and it got to December last year and I remember thinking I need to take two weeks off like this is mm. ridiculous but then COVID happened and loads of people got sick not I think it was like the second round and so loads of people didn't record with me in December so I had to take the break in January because of the whole episode thing and I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna take, I just took one week off Instagram, by the way. I was still on it to message guests, but not engaging, not mm. looking at anything else. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, everyone, people are gonna unfollow you and you're gonna lose track. Nothing happened. Mm. And then I recently went to Unplugged, which is this cabin, and I switched off for three days. And all I'm dreaming about is being able to do that mm. for like a week. Yeah, It is so nice. It's so but nice. then at the same time, I'm, it puts me in a bit of a conflict because I love what I do. But sometimes it feels like it can just be very overbearing to be so stimulated all the time, especially if like you and I, you're on multiple different platforms. It can feel very overwhelming. So how do you manage that at the moment? I I tend to just kind of like post less on the weekends or come offline and then maybe post on a Sunday evening, like more mm -hmm. of a roundup. I think I've gotten into the habit of sharing a lot of my life like online. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, and I've got people who followed me from 11 years ago and still follow today and maybe have shot myself in the foot in that there's an expectation for me to always be posting but any time that I've been like hey I'm taking a week off or I'm taking a month off or mm -hmm. I'm taking a weekend off everyone's just like amazing actually I'm going to do that too yeah yeah and I think once you when you show that it also like encourages people to take a step back because it is your work but we all need to switch off from work as well and I think the tricky thing when you work online as a creator is the boundaries get very blurred and so when are you switching off like yeah when and also I've never put an out of office on I don't know how to do that on my normal email. I'm just like, oh, it's okay, I'll just reply. But actually, it's really detrimental. When you speak about burnout, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to say, well, how do I know that it's happening? Because you said it was a build-up, right? Mm. How, what are the beginning stages of burnout and how do we prevent it? I think my biggest 
telltale sign was like I was a exhausted but b I was becoming less compassionate um and becoming more irritable so I'd find Mm -hmm. myself like showing up to work and feeling like I wasn't giving it everything and I was having to work harder to be compassionate which sounds terrible as a doctor but I wasn't able to be fully present and Mm. I am the type of person that if you cry I will cry if you laugh I will laugh I feel emotions very deeply it's one one of the reasons I'm in a kind of caregiving industry Mm. I like to help people and I just found myself feeling like a shell of my former self and the things I used to enjoy doing were no longer giving me joy um and I was starting to slowly cut myself away from friends and family not checking in because I knew if I was checking in with them they'd just ask me how work was going and you know at the time if you were a doctor in COVID everyone just wanted to know what was going on yeah and I get that but I was just like I'm done with talking about it tell me about like your baby or like Mm. you know how many banana breads you baked this weekend like I want to know about the mundane things yeah because you were so engrossed in that which is really tough so I think when people start finding they're losing interest in their job in something that formerly brought them joy they're losing joy from things that they would normally enjoy Mm. and you're kind of walking around with this feeling of like lethargy and fatigue all the time there are signs that something's going wrong and it doesn't mean that it's necessarily burnout like sometimes we're just stressed from work yeah um or it could be other things like you're going through anxiety or depression so it's always really important to speak to a health professional Mm -hmm. because I think those things can get really tangled up and I didn't realize it was burnout until my therapist said this is what it is. While we're talking about burnout, I actually wanted to mention this sleep supplement from Form. Because if you're struggling with burnout, finding it really hard to tap into your creativity, or just generally feeling overwhelmed, you might be making the same mistake I was and I wasn't getting enough sleep. Form have created a sleep supplement that can help you get the most out of your days and naturally support a regenerative sleep. Centered around 5-HTP, calming amino acids, and essential dietary minerals such as magnesium and zinc, this supplement actually works to address any deficiencies you may be having related to your sleep by calming the mind and relaxing the body. Now, I've been taking one of these about 30 minutes before I go to sleep, And I genuinely cannot tell you what a difference it has made to my life. Not only can I fall asleep a lot quicker, I actually sleep throughout the night, which I never used to do before, which helps me to wake up feeling more energized and more refreshed. And I actually think I've been happier in the mornings too. So if you want to try these, I've actually got a code, as you all know, because Form are sponsoring this podcast, which is AMM10. This gets you 10% off the sleep supplement. It's really, really helped me and I can't wait to hear how it's going to help you. So if you try it, please DM me and let me know so I can share your story. Now back to the podcast. So I'm one very stressed individual. How do I prevent it? (laughs) How do I stop it? Because I think I am a high functional stress person. I don't know if that makes sense. Does that make sense? But I thrive off stress. Yeah. I feel like I need to be stressed to get things done. Some people do thrive off it and there is a stress curve where like it increases your performance to a level 
and then there's a tipping point and then your performance drops so stress is good but in small doses it's right. when we're like chronically stressed all the time and it's negatively affecting us that's when it's kind of harmful um what i mean like by negatively affecting you is you're crying all the time you can't sleep you're emotionally eating you are having arguments with your kind of your friends with your kind of other partner it's affecting your quality of life mm. if you're stressed but you're coping fine you're able to sleep at night you are getting your work done you're maybe a little bit under pressure but you're still like getting through it then that's fine so I think it's like finding that right balance and it's hard to completely eliminate stress. I don't think it's even possible. Yeah. Um, and we all deal with stress and are more resilient to stress than others. So like everyone will have their own mm. level of resilience. And I think that's also a lot to do with our life experience as well as our personality, as well as our support system um, as well as our circumstances you know yeah. like some of us are in really hard circumstances be that financial be that emotional be that you know trying to support a family yeah um so it's very hard to eliminate it completely but I think having kind of tools in your toolbox that help mitigate stress is really helpful and again I think that can be quite personal because for some people, having a bath is super relaxing. For other people, that feels like a waste of time. And I know that for me and my partner, for example, I love reading books. I love having baths. And for him, that would drive him insane. It would make him more stressed. Whereas his way of relieving stress would be going out on a bike ride or climbing a wall, like, like going bouldering, not just a random <laughs> random wall. Spider-Man <laughs> climbing all the walls in your house. <laughs> just, I, I was like... So, like on your wall in your kitchen, <laughs> I'm relieving my stress. <laughs> Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. But, oh god! But that will, like, if he's had a hard day of work, he'll go to the bouldering <laughs> club and do that. Whereas I'm like, all I want to do is put on a face mask and read my book. And we're very different in that way. But that's it's knowing you and what like helps you relax. And I think one thing that. I found really helpful is just communicating about it I I'm a, the type of person that historically would be like head in the sand kind of girl if there's a really? problem I will deal with it by myself or I'll put my head in the sand and see I wish I was like that no it's not it's not productive and <laughs> being in a relationship with David he's very direct and he can sniff if there's something off so he'll be like what is the problem we're dealing with it now and it's made me deal with problems head on be that in our relationship or something else and learn to have hard conversations mm. because it's those hard conversations that usually lead to solutions so sure. that's in work or something's going on between you and your friend and like you just let it simmer because you're mm. like oh I don't want to cause drama but be upfront and honest be kind about it but be open upfront and honest I feel like that's the best kind of way to get through like difficult conversations difficult times put your hand up and say I need help right now for I'm sure really struggling I'm somebody who over communicates sometimes I cannot keep anything in my stomach if I was unhappy with you I physically would not be able to sit in front of you and be like hi I'd be like hey shall we have a chat you oh, know really? I can't do it 
I find it I find it really peculiar when people <laughs> can talk to me for about an hour and then later on it'd be like, Oh, by the way, I just wanted to let you know and I'm like, Huh? What we just we just had a nice conversation. I'm so yeah. confused. But my partner is very much like that. He doesn't really communicate. Very typical, I guess, how men and women are portrayed, which yeah. is why I loved her example because it's polarizing. So opposite. But he's very much around not perhaps communicating how he feels and telling me afterwards. But I find that really difficult because I feel that he's been lying to me. Mm. So now we have a really, and that was at the start of our relationship. So now we have a really open relationship where he's learned to be super vulnerable. And I think vulnerability is the key because often when I would say something, I would come from a place of defensiveness. Mm. And so I would be upset about something, but instead of actually being really vulnerable and saying, this has made me feel really insecure and I'm feeling really insecure about this, I would say, you know what? You are this, this, and this, Yeah, this. you're the problem. You're the problem. <laughs> and I've learned to now say, I'm really insecure. And please tell me if I'm right and wrong, but this has made me really insecure. And that has allowed him to be super, super vulnerable with me because he sees that I'm being like mm-hmm. that. And I think that's not even between couples. That's between your friends, between men, between women, whoever it is. If one person lets their guard down, then the other person feels that they can relate to them, have that empathy towards them and, mm-hmm. and have that compassion towards them. Because if I come to you and say, Hazel, you are so rude, you're probably gonna be defensive. Yeah. But if I come to you and say, Hazel, I really, really care about our friendship and I was so upset and I was really hurt because I think the world of you, yeah. you're not gonna turn around and be like, oh, get over it. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> Naturally, you just wouldn't. They're very different things. And I talk around confrontation a lot of the time, but so many of us are afraid of it. Mm. I can't remember what we were talking about. What was the point? We're talking about stress. Oh, yeah, so stress. Kind of yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, huh? What were we speaking but about? But I guess to bring it back, like the takeaway is having open, honest conversations with the people that you love. If you're feeling stressed, be that about them or not. Mm-hmm. Like, because, like, what's that quote? Like, a problem shared is a problem halved. Yeah. And my mum used to always say that. And I feel like only now as an adult, I'm like, ah, that does actually make sense. Yeah, my mom used to say that all the time to me, which is why I just offload everything onto her. And she, <laughs> when I called her the other day, I was like, I can't stop crying. And she was like, don't cry. And then I just kept crying more because my mom's so like softly spoken so and cute. Sweet. But I had this analogy the other day. I don't know why this came up, but I was thinking about when you're swimming and you're learning how to swim, you have those floats, right? Mm. And they're there to support you. And sometimes when you're swimming and you need a bit of a break, you can grab a float. Mm. And I think it's the same within your friendships or your relationships. We're so scared to rely on other people. But actually, they're there for you for you to rely on them for a bit. You know, they're there to get you through that difficult time while you catch your breath, while you find your feet. It's not that you're gonna be reliant on them for life, but we all have relationships in our lives where we need to give, and we shouldn't be so afraid of taking as well, because I'm sure there's been times where you've supported your friends, and there'll be times where you need their support, but we are afraid to always ask for that, so I think that's really interesting. What I wanna talk to you about most is the difference between men and women and how they handle all their problems. Because I think I've been a little bit naive, if I'm honest. If you've heard any of my conversations, I'm always like, we are the same. But not biologically, but what I mean is, I think I'm so sick of people saying, men don't talk about their problems and women do. Men are so unemotional and women are. Because I think it puts people into boxes. I'm not saying there's not actually a difference between us I just think we shouldn't stereotype but you found actual facts <laughs> to tell me the difference well when it comes obviously we're generalizing here yes. um and when it comes to kind of stress mental health how we deal with stress between men and women or males and females it's very hard to untangle the differences that are like biological or 
that are socially accepted norms. So like what I mean by that is, you know, like we've got ideals of what we think a woman should do and what a man should do when they're stressed. Like yeah. men should be angry and drink alcohol and fight with each other. <laughs> Women should just cry and find their girlfriends. And so we don't really do ourselves any favors by like holding on to those stereotypes. Like, you know, like girls can cry, but boys, like little boys shouldn't cry. That's what girls do. Mm. And that can be really harmful and it can perpetuate the stereotype. But biologically speaking, it seems that there is like a basis to that in that like women tend to um, what we say, like befriend when they're like in a stressful situation. So they will they'll first put their young first. So they'll kind of worry about their kids first and the people that they love. And they'll turn to their closest support network for support. Whereas men tend to not do that. They tend to internalize. Mm. And so um, they will not kind of, they'll be more like aggressive with their ways of dealing with stress. I.e. they're more likely to turn to alcohol, more likely to um, die by suicide, more likely to experience certain kinds of mental disorders, whereas women are actually more likely to experience anxiety and depression, twice as likely, because we ruminate over problems, we internalize problems, and while that is maybe biologically based, it's also socially based. And so it's very hard to untangle what's what, but it seems we have these norms for both. Some of it is driven by hormones, some of it may be just driven by what we as society deem acceptable for a man and a woman to experience and it's not to say men don't experience depression and anxiety they definitely do they're less likely to talk about it and they're probably less likely to show up to their doctor to be diagnosed with those conditions um but i think the other thing with women is they're probably more women are more likely to be misdiagnosed with anxiety and when they come in To hospital, you know, they may be presenting with something like heart chest pain and it might feel like palpitations and then they would be diagnosed with something like anxiety. And we see that in the research that women are more likely to be misdiagnosed when having a heart attack compared to men. Really? Because we don't have the assumption that women have things like heart disease. We believe it's a man's disease. And so you know this this narrative that women are hysterical emotional so if you present and you're like I'm having this feeling in my chest and it's unusual and it's a fluttering feeling your doctor may not assume that you're having a heart attack and may say you know it sounds like you know palpitations maybe you're a bit anxious and that's not to say they won't do their due diligence and go through the whole diagnostic processes but what we see in the research is there's many delays to that when it comes to women because of this assumption that women don't get heart heart attacks women don't have heart heart disease and you see that in the uk in a developed country with a developed healthcare system oh my gosh i never thought about it like that Mm. i do feel that on this podcast because i speak so much about my personal experience as a lot of people have said can you talk about men's mental health and can you talk around men's perspective but i'm not a man so i can't actually talk about their perspective but i do think that it's a real pandemic about how men feel they really can't speak up and I've noticed it more and more and more only because in my own family everyone's quite vocal Mm. and everyone is quite emotional so I never thought that the whole world wasn't does that make sense yeah but when I'm speaking to some people's friends they're like I've never seen my dad cry 
I've never seen my brother shed a tear in his eye. He's never talked to me about his feelings. And I'm thinking, huh, what? Mm. I never knew that. And it's only when I'm hearing some of these stories and actually understanding the pressures that are on men in terms of financial, you know, being this man, you know, I'm not going to say his name, but there's someone out there, AT, who keeps, do you know who I'm talking about? No. Andrew Tate. I'm not allowed to say his name because I get cancelled. But he essentially promotes, you know, this idea of a masculine man. And I think that just adds more and more pressure. And people feel that they aren't able to go to the doctor and perhaps say, hey, I'm feeling anxious. So does that skew the stats a bit? Because if men are only going in when they're having heart attacks, let's Mm. say, and women are only going in when they are anxious, then we're kind of skewing the stats, right? Um, I think it's... That definitely is part of it, where men are probably less likely to come forward with um, to their GP with mental health issues. But even when we control for numbers of diagnoses, women are still more likely to be given antidepressants for um, non-psychiatric conditions, so non-mental health-related conditions. And so what I mean by that is we often will prescribe antidepressants for physical problems and going back to the heart research there's been uh, evidence today that women have been like offered anti-anxiety medications when they're they've actually been having a heart attack wow and so i don't say this to like cause fear Mm. um it's just to raise awareness and we need to stop treating women as just these emotional Mm. um anxious beings that don't have real physical health problems because we do Mm. you know we talk about women's health as if it's just our organs but you know all parts of our body matter and we experience the same conditions that men do like heart disease and cancer and stroke Mm. and we can die of all those risk factors as well so it's it's something that i think it was the reason i wrote the book really the female factor is because I realize that in health and healthcare, women don't get the same treatment as men do right? because we don't have the research on them. The research is based on a male body and we just assume that women are small men and therefore they should respond to the same treatment. They should have the same outcomes, but they don't. And that assumption harms women. Mm. And, you know, it's not just conditions related to both men and women in the UK only 2.5% of our research goes towards reproductive health problems like endometriosis PCOS infertility there's so many of those conditions that really really are harrowing for women to live with Mm. it causes really debilitating um it can be really debilitating for women and if men experience all of those or if it was a universal problem I guarantee there would be a lot more money going into the research behind why this happens. I never knew that there was such a big difference. And, you know, there's just so much more I want to talk to you about. I had about five other things that I wanted to mention, but we are out of time. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And we'll do a part two soon. <laughs> thank you.